Well, I'm glad to see that all of you are uh, following the teachings of Jesus. You know, he said when you gather together, you don't sit up in the front row in the place of honor. You always sit in the back so you can be called for it. You know, I grew up as a Presbyterian, and they did the same thing. And then I, I married a Methodist and became a Methodist, and they do the same thing. So all of you guys are following Jesus. That's good. That's good. Well, it's good for me to be here this morning. Um, it's, uh, I will warn you, it's probably a good thing you're not sitting in the front row because I've been fighting a bronchial infection for the last week or so, so I may start hacking and coughing up here, and it's probably just as well that you're sitting in the back anyway. So anyway, it's good for me to be here. Um, I don't know if it's going to be good for you, but it's good for me because I can stand up here and talk about Jesus, and that's always a good thing as far as uh, I'm concerned. I, I will tell you this, too. I'm loaded up with antihistamine right now, and that's not the best thing to do when you're going to be speaking in public because you get cotton mouth like crazy. So I may be taking a break every now and then to take a drink. We're continuing... Um, as you're aware, in our journey through the Gospel of John uh, this morning. And I'd like to invite you if, you, if you have your Bibles there, to open your Bibles or your devices or whatever you use to, the chap to chapter 18 of John. And by now, we should all be aware that the, uh, the first 11 chapters of John's Gospel covers the, the first three to three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. And then in chapters 12 through 20, they chronicle just six days, the last six days in the life of Jesus, what we refer to as Holy Week. Really, chapters 13 through 19 cover one day. And in the past weeks, if you were here, you knew we looked at Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and then the plotting of the Jews to rid themselves of him. And uh, then chapters 13 through 16, we saw the Lord's Supper and what is, uh, what is known as the Upper Room Discourse. Brian went over all of those things. And then chapter 17, we looked at the High Priestly Prayer. And last week, we watched as Judas betrayed Jesus and he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was taken to be tried before the priests. And finally, we saw Peter... Peter not having one of his better days. So now we see Jesus being brought before Pilate. So let's begin reading, if we will, in chapter 18, beginning in verse 28. And I'll read down through verse 33. And they led Jesus, therefore, from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early. And they themselves did not enter into the praetorium in order that they might not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Now, that's one of those details that you find in the Gospel of John that I pointed out the last time I was up here. Pilate, therefore, went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Pilate, therefore, said to him, Take him yourself. And judge him according to your law. And the Jews said to him, We're not permitted to put anyone to death. That the word of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death 
he was about to die. By the way, you find that in John chapter 3, verse 14, when he said he'd be lifted up and so forth. And then Pilate therefore entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? Now, um, you know, I'll just set this down here. Let's, let's just pray first. That'd probably be a good idea, wouldn't it? Lord, I just ask that your presence might be with us today and that you might fulfill your purpose in this time. That your Holy Spirit will come and he'll be with us and in us. And as your word goes forth this morning, I pray that it'll produce good fruit. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Pilate, Pilate asked Jesus a question. In fact, in, in, John, in, in the last half of John chapter 18, he asked Jesus two questions. And I want to look at those two questions this morning. Because Jesus answers the first one, but he doesn't answer the second one. And the first question that Pilate asks, it, it comes really in, in two parts. He says, the first he says, are you the king of the Jews? And that may seem like kind of an odd question on the surface, but, but then you, if you realize that uh, in the ancient world, there were kings everywhere. I mean, they, they, the, when, when we think of kings today, we think of someone that's a king of a large nation or something like that. But in the ancient world, every city or major city or city-state, if you will, they had a king, and the Romans, they had conquered most of the known world at the time. I don't know if you guys, you guys got the slides back there? Are you paying attention, or are you just, what are you doing? But there's a, there's a map of the Roman Empire. They had, they had conquered most of the known world at the time. And these so-called self-appointed kings and kingdoms were everywhere, and they conquered them one right after another. So the Romans were very experienced when it came to dealing with kings. And most of the time, they just killed them, but sometimes they would keep them uh, in place as vassals to serve the empire and to maintain order. And, for example, the Herod at Jesus' time was such a vassal to the Roman Empire. So they're always dealing with kings in one way or another. So the question that Pilate asked Jesus, are you a king, was really not out of the ordinary. And Pilate, first and foremost, if you think about it, Pilate was a political animal. He want, he, and he wants to know who he's dealing with here. If you remember in John chapter 12, when Jesus came into Jerusalem, the crowd was shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Pilate surely had heard this. He had his feelers up. He knew the, what the people were saying. So it's a very legitimate question that he poses to Jesus. Are you a king? How did you get to be a king? Did, did the people appoint you or anoint you as the king? Or are you just a king in your own mind? I've dealt with kings before, Jesus, so what kind of king are you? 
It's a legitimate question. And I think Pilate really wants to wants an answer. He wants to know. He wants to know who he's dealing with. So Jesus answers him in verse, beginning in verse 34. And Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative? Or did others tell you about me? And Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you up to me. What have, what have, what have you done? And Jesus answered, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this world. So Pilate says, he, he, now this, here comes the second part of his question. He says, well, if you have a kingdom, then you must be a king. And Jesus confirms this. He says, you're right, I am a king. I am, I, but I'm no threat to you, Pilate. I'm no threat to you, either politically or otherwise, because my kingdom is not of this world. And then we read in verse 37, Pilate therefore said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say correctly, I am a king. For this I was born. And for this I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Now, there's so much more I could say here about just the politics that are going on with, between Pilate and Jesus and everybody else. Because Pilate, again, Pilate is a political animal. And he wanted to keep order. In fact, he's the governor of Judea because his, he was appointed that because his predecessor couldn't get the job done. So Pilate is a political man, and he knows it. And, he, and, he, and when you think about this, what, what took place here, Pilate relied upon the Jewish leaders to keep order. That was part of what he did with them. He wanted to please the Jewish leaders so that he wouldn't have all kinds of strife and trouble. But he also had to deal with the crowd, the people. And if you remember, the people were, at least initially, on Jesus' side. So Pilate, he, <laughs> Pilate has an issue here. He's got one side wanting to deal away with this guy, and another side maybe wanting to make him proclaim him king. So Pilate's in a dilemma. So what does he do? He puts it to the crowd. And we go on and we finish reading this, and Pilate said to him, well, he's, I'll go back and start in verse 37. Pilate therefore said to him, so you are a king? And Jesus answered, you say correctly. I am the king. For this I have been born, or this I have been born, for this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews, and he said to them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish that then I release for you the king of the Jews? And therefore they cried out again, saying, No, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Pilate is pretty shrewd here. He knows he's got a problem on one side and another. So what does he do? He, he puts the choice to the crowd. 
And it says, he brings out a man by the name of Barabbas. And it says, Barabbas is a robber. Now, here's something that I find interesting. When you look at the name Barabbas, and you look at the contrast between the choice that Pilate gives the people, it's really interesting. In fact, in, in Hebrew, the word bar means son of. So you have, uh, for example, you have Peter who was uh, Peter Bar Jonah. That was his name. He was the son of Jonah, Bar Jonah. That's where they, the, you've heard the word Bar Mitzvah. The Bar there means son of, and Mitzvah means law. So you have the son of the law. That's the Bar Mitzvah. Here you have Bar Rabbas, Bar Abbas. Bar means son of, Abba means father. So you have the son of the father. Now, Barabbas here is described as a robber, but in other places in the scripture, he's, he, he's characterized as being a murderer or a, and a thief and a liar. And it's kind of interesting because if you go back to John chapter 8, when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, he says, you are of your father the devil who is a murderer and a thief and a liar. In fact, he is the father of lies. So the same words that Jesus used to describe the Pharisees, Barabbas is described as in the scripture. So the contrast there is striking. In fact, it's a sermon in and of itself. I can't, I don't have time to go there. But on the one hand, you have Jesus, the son of Father God, and you have Barabbas, the son of the devil. In other words, you have the son of truth, and you have the son of the father of lies. And the choice goes to the people. And what did they choose? They chose the lie. And again, that, uh, that's a sermon in and of itself, but I can't go there. So anyway, Jesus says, I was born a king, and that is the truth, and I come to bear witness to the truth, which brings me to Pilate's second question. When Jesus says he's come to bear witness to the truth, Pilate says, well, what is truth? And the first thing that stands out to me is the contrast between the two questions, because the first question that Pilate asked, I think he was actually seeking an answer. But in this question, the second one, I think if you look at the tone of it, it, su it suggests that he wasn't really asking a question to get an answer. He was more or less making a statement. He was making a statement, and it was pretty cynical. It's kind of like if you've ever watched any of these congressional hearings when they're questioning the witnesses, they don't want any answers, do they? They just want to make a statement. They want to, and that's, that's the way I see Pilate doing it here. When Jesus said, I bear witness to the truth, I think Pilate was really suggesting, yeah, right, Jesus. You know, what is truth? There's... There is no truth, really. I mean, there's your truth. There's my truth. There's the Jews. They have their truth. And all the pagans all around the world, everybody has their own truth. There is no such thing as truth or real truth. And that question 
That question, what is truth, really, it doesn't originate with Pilate because it goes back to the very beginning. That question or that statement, as cynical as it is, has been present at the forefront throughout man's history. What is truth? And if you look at our world today, I think it's especially applicable in the world we live in today. And it's the most profound question in the history of man. In fact, back when I was teaching this stuff, I did 13 weeks just on this one question. And the word truth or variations of it appear in 46 books of the Bible and all, oh, over 400 times. And you'll find it 25 times just in the Gospel of John alone. And I think, you know, when I was thinking about it, you've, you've probably seen on, on these man-on-the-street interviews that, you, that they do on, in some of the news organizations. You've seen that, right? This means yes, I've seen it. It means no, I haven't. You've seen it? Okay. Well, I was thinking, what if, what if you went out on the man-on-the-street interviews, and by the way, you have to have a camera with it because people go crazy when they're on camera. But if you would go, let's say you would just go to the ISU campus and you would ask, you would just pick out students randomly on the, on, on the street and ask them that question. What is truth? Or what if you went to uh, Harvard or Yale or some of the Ivy League colleges out in the East Coast and you asked the questions of the students, what is truth? Do you think... And, or maybe even if you ask the faculty, the professors, the intellectually elite, and you ask them that question, do you think you'd get different answers? Of course you would. What if you went to Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills and you just walked up and down and asked the people there, all the beautiful people, what is truth? Would that be any different if you went to San Francisco and one of those homeless conclaves that they have out there and ask those people what is truth? I think you'd get a lot of different answers, wouldn't you? How about if you ask a teenager? If you have any teenagers that you know, just ask them that question. What, would, what do you think their answer? Or maybe a 30-something or a 50-something or somebody that's my age. You ask that question, you're going to get several different answers. You know, our postmodern culture has really done a number on the idea of truth. It professes that truth and morality are relative, that there's no such thing as an absolute truth. Well, we intuitively know that that's not true, don't we? I mean, there has to be absolutes. It just can't be right. We know that because of the law of non-contradiction. Have you ever heard of the law of non-contradiction? That law states that two things that contradict each other, they can't be both true at the same time. Let me say that again. Two things that contradict each other can't be true at the same time. And you don't need a PhD in philosophy or logic to figure that out because if I say that there is... Well, if you... Just think of the phrase itself. If you say there is no absolute truth, isn't that an absolute? 
I mean, so the, the phrase itself contradicts itself. And if you apply the law of non-contradiction, it can't be true. They both can't be true. So if I say that God exists and you say that he doesn't, both those statements can't be true. But we're being taught today that they can be. The modern notions of pluralism and tolerance are a, are a direct result of our culture's assault on the truth. And the modern-day pluralist insists that, well, every viewpoint or belief system, no matter how ridiculous, is just as valid as any other. They say all religions can be true, even though they contradict each, each other. They say all religions can be true, or they say no religion can be true. But what they won't say is that only one religion can be true. So let me just say a few words about religion here and this question of truth. Because all religions make truth claims. They all claim to have some kind of handle on the truth. And many of them contradict each other, so if one applies the law of non-contradiction, they can't all be true, thus negating the premise that all of them are true or valid. But they all have a few things in common. They all have, for example, they all try to answer the five big questions. And I don't know if we got a slide for this or not. The five big questions that all religions try to answer. The first one has to do with origin. Yeah. I mean, where do we come from? That's the first big question they all try to answer. The second one has to do with identity. Who are we? And the third one, meaning. Why are we here? And then morality is number four. How should we live? How should we behave? And then the fifth one has to do with destiny. Where are we going? And they all come up with differing answers to this question. They all come up with all kinds of different, different schemes that get you there. Whoops. But uh, they all try to answer that question. They do it differently, but they all have one thing in common. All religions in the history of man have one thing in common. You know what that is? They all agree on one thing. They all agree that something <clears throat> is not right about the human condition. They all agree on that. Something's not right about the human condition. Something is just not right about man. He's flawed. He's just not right. They all agree that way. And so where they differ then is they've got this problem that mankind is flawed and they come up with differing solutions on how to solve the problem. From the very beginning to this very day, man has invented various schemes and systems of belief that he uses to explain and to justify his answers to those questions and especially to the solution to the biggest problem of all, that mankind is not right. Something is not right about man. So we come up, we create all these belief systems, 
in codes of conduct, in behavioral standards that will get us somehow in good standing with God or whatever we perceive God to be. Because even if you're an atheist or a humanist or a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Taoist or whatever, you come up with some kind of a belief system that'll produce purity or enlightenment or some kind of evolution for the betterment of the species. Because we just know down deep inside that we're not right. To say it simply, all religions in the history of man are man-made. All religions are man-made. All religions are where man sets his own terms by which God then is obligated to accept him. By the way, if you look at Christianity as a religion, it's the same. It does the same thing. We all come up with ways to where we can try to solve the problem ourselves. And every religion in the history of man is, all, is based on works. It's incumbent upon man to get to God. It's man's responsibility to work his way and get rid of that problem of not being right, of being flawed. And Jesus... If you, if you read the Bible and you look, Jesus did not come to this earth to found a religion. That's not why he came. He didn't come to set up a system of behavior or, or laws or things like that. He didn't come to do that. See, religion is man's attempt to make himself right with God or his God equivalent, whatever that is. But Jesus didn't come to do that. And the problem, by definition, if you think about it, that which is imperfect cannot make itself perfect, by definition. That which is flawed cannot make itself flawless. And nothing man has tried has got him there. So he continually goes back and asks the question, what is truth? Is there absolute truth? Can the truth be known? How should I, where do I go to find the answers to all these questions? And that's the question that mankind has asked over the centuries from the very beginning. What is truth? It is such a profound question. What should I believe? How should I behave? What can I do to relieve myself of this problem? And so Pilate asks the question. And it's interesting to me, when you really look at that question and you pay attention to what he's asking, it's profound. Pilate didn't ask Jesus, what is the truth? He asked Jesus, what is truth? It is a subtle difference, but it is so important. He's not looking for what the truth is. He's looking for what is truth. 
He asked it. What's the definition of truth? What, what does the truth consist of? Does the truth have characteristics that I can see? Does the truth have a nature? Does it exist on its own? You know, someone once said, and I think it was Aristotle, but I'm not sure, and I didn't look it up, but someone once said, to understand a thing, you must understand the nature of the thing. You say that again. To understand a thing, you must understand the nature of a thing. Well, does truth have a nature? Yes, it does. Truth does have a nature. I don't know if that's, well, there you go. You got anything left or got anything after that? Okay, good. Well, let's go through them. Let me just give you some of the, some of the things that the nature of truth so you can understand it. First, truth is not invented. Truth is discovered. Truth is not invented. It is discovered. Truth exists independent of anyone's knowledge of it. And here, I'll just re- relate to you the story of Sir Isaac Newton. You remember that story where he's sitting under an apple tree? I don't know if it's a true story or not, but it sounds good. And he's sitting there, and an apple falls and hits him right on the head. And he figures out gravity. You see, he, gravity was there before that happened, but it, 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 he just discovered it. It was, he didn't invent it, he just discovered it. So truth is not invented, it is discovered. Second, truth is transcultural. Truth, if something is true, it's true for all people in all places. In other words, if, it, if it's true for the people in America, it's true for the people in Asia or Africa or Europe or South America or wherever. Truth is true for all people in all places. Thirdly, if something is true, it's true for all times. So truth is timeless. Beliefs about truth can change, but the truth never changes. I mean, we used to think, we used to believe that the earth was flat or that the sun revolved around the earth. So truth can, truth has always been there. It never changes. Beliefs can change, but beliefs cannot change a fact, no matter how sincerely they're believed. The truth is there for all times. It's timeless. In fact, if you would have asked me when I was 22 years old and you had asked me that question, what is true? Well, I'd have given you an answer. But now I'm 50 years later, my answer would be probably a little bit different than it was back then. But the truth has always been the same. The truth when I was a teenager was true for me just as it's true is today. The truth is timeless. Number four, truth is not affected by the attitudes of the one professing it. Let me say that again. Truth is not affected by the attitudes of the one professing it. A jerk can tell the truth. A jerk can speak the truth. And then then a kind-hearted, well-intentioned person can profess falsehoods. So it's not affected by the attitudes of one professing it. And then lastly, all truths are absolute. All truth is absolute. Even the truths that appear relative to us, they are absolute. 
Contrary beliefs are possible, but contrary truths are not possible. There's no such thing as parallel truth. And that's the nature of truth. And to understand a thing, you need to understand its nature. So if truth exists, and it's obvious that it does, where does it come from? Does it have an origin? Does truth have a source? Well, if you think about this, and if you will allow me this morning to to presume to take the place of Jesus here, Jesus said that his Father is the source of all truth. That God is truth. Now, if you think about that statement, it really makes sense. Because if God, was, if God is the creator, if God created all of this, then that's the reality that we live in. So it has to be the truth. So Jesus says, the Father is truth. Not the truth. He is truth. And that statement, folks, that Jesus is either true or it's not, right? You get that? It's either true or it's not. So how do you know? How do you know whether it's true or not? Where do you go to find out the answer to that? That the Father is truth. Well, here's a thought for you. Jesus also said that he is truth, didn't he? He said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So in order to get to the truth, think about it. In order to get to the truth, you have to come through the truth. Are you with me? Maybe not. Well, we're not done yet. Because Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit. And he says that no one can come to him unless the Holy Spirit leads them. And then in John 16, he says, When the he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. So stay with me here. So the spirit of truth guides you to truth Jesus who brings you to father truth and the truth leads you to the truth who brings you to the truth. You look like a deer in headlights out there. But if you think about this, mankind has been asking the wrong question from the very beginning because they're wanting to know what is the truth. Pilate got it right. He asked what is truth, not what is the truth. And I hope you see the difference. It's subtle, but it is incredibly profoundly important because it is God who is truth. You see, the truth is not a what, the truth is a who. 
And I hope you see the difference. It's not a what, it's a who. And here's the most amazing thing about the truth, at least the part that I've discovered over the years. You go back to Sir Isaac Newton when he's sitting there under that tree and the apple hit him on the head. The truth found him. He didn't find the truth. The truth found him. He wasn't even looking for it. He was just sitting there probably minding his own business, contemplating his navel or whatever, but the truth found him. It literally hit him on the head. And friends, that is how we come to know the truth. You ask, well, how do I, how do I find the truth? Well, that's how. See, the truth comes to us, not the other way around. And over the years, I have known so many people, they start reading the Bible, and I know many of you have done that. You start reading the Bible, you get involved in Bible studies and all this other stuff because you want to find God. I know because I was one of them. And I've been going to church all my life, and I've known more people who go to church because they want to find God. They think if they come to church, they'll find God. And I was one of them too. But somewhere, somewhere in all of that and somewhere along the line, God found me. God found me. It wasn't the other way around. In, in the words of a, another Newton, John Newton, in the words of a famous hymn that you've all sang many, many times, I'm sure. He said, I was lost, but now I'm found. I didn't find the truth, friends. The truth found me. And all that time I thought I was searching for truth, and the reality was the truth was searching for me. That is amazing grace. And that's when I really came to know the truth. You know, I know you've, you, a lot of you have read the Bible. You did that last year. Well, you know the Bible? The Bible is not the story of man trying to find God. The Bible is the story of God coming to man. Jesus said it this way. He said, I have come to seek the lost. The truth has come to seek the lost. The truth seeks us, folks, and the truth finds us. It's not the other way around. Think of, you know, when you think of it in those terms, it changes everything. God wants to find you more than you'll ever want to know him. And it changes everything when you think of it in those terms. Now, one more thing about the truth. Jesus said you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, I always wondered about that. It's going to set me free. What's it? Free from what? 
What does the truth set me free from? Well, let's go back to the truth and see. When truth Jesus died on that cross, he sets you free from your sin. He freed you from your sin. He freed you to again be reconciled and restored to truth father. So he sets you free from your sin. And then when truth Jesus was resurrected, he set you free from death. Because truth Jesus brings life eternal. So he sets you free from your sin. He sets you free from death. The truth will set you free. Then there is the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit who comes and sets you free from the lies of the devil and the deceits of the world and all the false teachings out there, and he leads you into what? All truth. You see how it works? Do you see the Trinity there? Do you understand that God is not the truth? God is truth. It's a big, huge difference. And if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. Now, if I could quote Jesus one more time, he said, I have come to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And friends, I stand up here and bear witness to the truth. And that's the truth. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for that this morning. That as your word of truth goes forth, I pray that someone here or someone who is listening online might hear your voice and be found today. And I pray it in your name. I pray it for your kingdom. And I pray it for your glory. Amen.